couple of things that I want to acknowledge as we begin today, a couple of things to celebrate. Uh, on, on June 19th in 1865, uh, we were able as a nation to celebrate the emancipation of enslaved African Americans uh, who were able to fully enjoy the freedom uh, that was fought for them through the course of the Civil War. And so June 19th has now been made a federal holiday to celebrate that, that true milestone. And, and obviously it's something that we want to celebrate uh, in our country because really anytime you talk about freedom in any capacity, it should take us back to the roots of the gospel. And as people of Jesus and followers of Jesus, we want to always advocate and celebrate uh, for every tongue, tribe, and nation to experience that sort of freedom. And so definitely want to acknowledge uh, what a milestone that is and how we commemorate that freedom uh, in our country on a day like today. Uh, and it also happens to coincide with, as you heard earlier, Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the men in the room who are either serving in that role or celebrating that they know uh, somebody that serves in that role as well. I hope that this is an awesome day of celebration for each and every one of you. I, I know that for me, it's a day that comes with a, a deep level of gratitude uh, because I think about the many different men in my life who have helped me understand uh, the love of a father. Obviously, I think about my dad first and foremost, and, and I'm so grateful uh, for the, the relationship I had with him and the many wonderful ways that he impacted me and in my life. Uh, but I also need to acknowledge that there are several other men that I've had the, uh, the privilege and just the joy of, of having shaped me and mold me through that kind of fatherly figure. I need to acknowledge my grandfather, my stepfather, my father-in-law, so many incredible men uh, that I know I can think of and come before you today with this true spirit of gratitude. Uh, but I also can tell you that just personally as a father, there's, there's really very few things in my life outside of following Christ in my marriage, very few other things that give me as much joy as being a dad. Uh, I just love it, and I'm so grateful for my three incredible children. Uh, it's a humbling responsibility, uh, but it's one that I truly cherish in every capacity. And, and I, I have all these different moments, you know, that life is filled with that allow me to truly just stop and be grateful for what it means to be a dad. And, and so, you know, it could be very significant moments. It could be very insignificant moments. One uh, you know, particular regular occurrence that I often gravitate towards that really helps me think about just the joy of being a dad is when I come home from work, you know, I, I pull in the driveway, I walk through the back door, and it's just an onslaught of noise. I don't know if anybody else has a similar experience when you get home, but the dogs typically are the first sound that I hear as they start barking and going crazy. I usually hear the activity of my kids running through the house in some level, and my wife is doing something, and and all of a sudden, I, I have a chance to just enter into that noise and, and sometimes that chaos. But it, but it stops to greet me, right? It's usually the dogs that greet me first. And then I, my wife and I will have an exchange. How are you? How was your day? My two older kids will come up and they'll, they'll hug me and they'll say, hi, dad. How was your day? And we'll talk briefly. Uh, but one particular moment that I really try to cherish right now, and this was true of my older children when they were this age, but Wu being five is still in that age of real childhood innocence uh, where everything is exciting, right? Like, I mean, you can say, woo, let's take out the trash. And he's like, yes, you know, I mean, he just gets excited about everything. So when I come home, you typically hear woo go, da-da, and then it's a full-on sprint to find me and just like a bear hug as best as he can do. Nearly knocks me over at times, and I just love it, right? I love the whole exchange, the whole experience, and it, to me, gives a, a, a good image for us to really latch onto today as well. 
Because I need to acknowledge that obviously Father's Day can bring forward a spirit of gratitude and blessing and appreciation. But for some of us, it also carries uh, some other emotions, right? Uh, For some of us, it is often a difficult day because we might have to confront or deal with some of the emotions that come with having a father that wasn't available, right? A father that left, uh, a father that hurt us, a father that maybe we've lost, right? Uh, the, the desire to be a father but not having it fulfilled. There's, there's a lot of different emotions that one can experience on a day like today. But I think about my youngest son in that image, and really all my, my children have demonstrated that at one point or another, and I think it gives us a sense of how it is that we should approach every week that we gather in here in worship, really how we should approach every day. That we don't need to fixate our hearts and our minds on our earthly experiences of fatherhood, but to to shift them directed towards the eternal picture of a heavenly father that we have, right? That we have this incredible hope, this almighty God, this loving father. That's how he wants to be known. And he reveals that love to us through Jesus Christ. And so rather than focusing so much just on the earthly experiences that we have with fathers, let us come here today and be reminded of this heavenly father and let us run into his arms and be welcomed with the love that he has for each and every single one of his children, and be grateful for it, and to celebrate it with a true spirit of devotion and praise. And so in order for us to do that, I wanna go to the the word of the Lord, but I wanna do so in a spirit of prayer, and ask that our hearts would be filled with his power and his presence this morning. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you, and we declare to one another that we want our hearts and our souls to be focused on you and you alone. And so help us now, God, to eliminate any distractions, anything that can, that can lead us astray and let us run into your everlasting arms with complete focus and with complete devotion. God, we are grateful for the many wonderful men who have played such an important role in our lives. We celebrate them today. We, we move forward in a spirit of gratitude for them today. God, we ask for healing for, for those who have maybe been wounded by, by fathers um, God, through the course of their lives, and that whether it's in a spirit of gratitude or in a need for healing, we, we Father, are so grateful that we can look to you above all and recognize your undying love for us, your everlasting love for us, and the promise that you've revealed to us through Jesus Christ. So let us be reminded once again of what an incredible Father that you are and what we've been blessed with in Christ as we turn now to your holy scriptures. Let your spirit fill this room and fill this place and fill our lives with a greater understanding of who you are as we seek to worship you and you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, so I wanna begin our discussion today with the subject of persuasion, right, and how we often are persuaded, and, and really the idea that persuasion takes place on so many different levels throughout your almost every day. And I, I wanna try to make that point by focusing in on one particular aspect. We can, we can expand beyond it, and we will here in a little bit, but just a common example uh, in the ways in which we often encounter the, the nuances of persuasion. Uh, I want to talk to you about food, okay? My family loves food. Can I get an amen? Amen. Hopefully you've got a great meal ahead of you later today, either for lunch or dinner. Uh, but my family loves food. In particular, my family growing up, man, we, we loved really orchestrating our lives around meals. I mean, that was kind of a, a normal conversation in our home. You go into the summer months, you talk about vacations, you talk about family visits. At some point, or another, it was gonna all center around that very critical question, what are we going to eat? And, and we would analyze it, we'd think about it, we'd evaluate it, we'd consider options, like we, we loved food. And if there was really anybody in my family that really kind of let out in this example, it was my dad. 
my dad loved food. And, and so we would often talk about things that, you know, restaurants we would want to try, things, meals we would want to experience, things like that. He cooked all the time. But when my life finally got to the point where I was able to go beyond the culinary extravagance of Abilene, Texas, and venture into other areas of the world, that became something that he and I really enjoyed doing. When I was in college, it was fun to take him to some of the local favorites. College students tend to have an idea of what some of the good local restaurants are, and we would often do that. But in particular, after college, uh, my wife and I moved to Pasadena, California, which truly is an epicenter almost of culinary extravagance. Like there are so many restaurants, so many different types of restaurants. And it can be pretty overwhelming to decide and answer the question, where are we going to eat? And so my dad would come visit, and that would often be a conversation that we would really try to analyze and evaluate. And I'll never forget, it was around that time that he introduced me to the Zagat food guide. Raise your hand if you ever had a Zagat food guide. A couple of us, okay? All right, yeah, I've seen one or two hands. And, and so if you're unfamiliar with what this is, this is at a time where online ratings and reviews were there, but they weren't quite as fixated and central to our culture. But it's essentially this little booklet that gives you a review of all restaurants in a particular area. And so my dad, it was like a little pocketbook. I mean, he'd like pull this thing out and he'd sit down and he'd be like, reading through it and give you, you know, an evaluation of the cost, the location, give you a little review of it. And so he'd be sitting there throughout the week and be like, you guys ever tried Bistro 45? No, Dad, we haven't been there. All right, all right, let's circle that one. What about Manny's Pizza? I'm like, no. What about Marston's? You know, and he would, I actually got it one time, and he had like notes, you know, like he had circled things. It was his food Bible, okay? And he would use the Zagat guy to really, really kind of influence him. It would be what would ultimately persuade him to choose which restaurant we were gonna go choose and eat. And, and over time, we would go all these great places that it influenced me, and I eventually got a Zagat guide as well. But now all of that sort of discussion and that level of persuasion now more commonly exists online with online reviews. Many of you are familiar with how important online reviews are in making decisions and how persuasive they can be. In fact, I came across an article uh, that was written by a man by the name of DJ Sprague who wrote in 2019 in an article entitled History of Online Reviews. Listen to some of these numbers. 72% of customers won't commit to a purchase without reading reviews first. 91% of millennials trust online reviews as much as they trust reviews from family and friends. 95% of travelers will check customer reviews before booking reservations. So whether it's a restaurant or a travel experience, we now live in a world where we are going to be persuaded by online reviews, right? It's all moved virtually and online. And, and that one example, zeroing in on food, restaurant selection, travel, is indicative of really a whole culture that is really built upon the power of persuasion, right? Because if it's not something as simple as where are we going to eat, it can be anything in life, right? You're going to get people knocking on your door trying to convince you to buy new windows or get new pest control or get new magazines, right? You're, you, you live in a whole society that's built upon it. Entrepreneurs trying to persuade new investors to support their startup. You got CEOs trying to persuade analysts to give them favorable reviews. You got salespeople trying to persuade us to buy certain products. Leaders trying to persuade employees, teachers persuading students, like preachers trying to persuade congregations, right? Everywhere we go, we're encountering this power and this nuance of persuasion, which leads me to a question. What makes it effective? Like, what is it in your experience that you could pinpoint and identify typically is effective in persuading you? 
What are those details? What are those elements of effective and powerful persuasion? Who do you know in your life that is typically very persuasive? And what kind of qualities do they exhibit? Now, I'm sure there would be different variations to how we would answer that question, but the truth is, is that if we all really had an opportunity to share, we'd also probably discover quite a few similarities. In fact, many people would argue that the art of persuasion has been pretty consistent for many, many years. Uh, Carmine Gallo wrote an article in Harvard Business Review back in 2019 as well that talked about the power of persuasion. And the premise of this article was that Aristotle, back in 2,000 years ago in his famous work, Rhetoric, essentially established all that we need to know about effective means of persuasion. Right? There were five elements that Aristotle identified for effective uh, elements of persuasion. Here are a couple of them. Uh, character. Right? The first thing that you see for effective persuasion is some form of trust being built between the speaker and the listener. Right? This is the idea of establishing credibility. Why do you need to listen to me to begin with? That often is an element in the art of persuasion. That led to a second element that Aristotle identified, which was reason. Right? you got to convey a need. This is why you need to listen to me. This is what is missing from your life. These are the things that you need to consider. Here's the risk. Here's the fear. you got to establish some form of need or reason. The third element of effective persuasion that Aristotle identified was emotion, right? He, he articulates in some, some form or fashion, this is paraphrasing, right, that essentially uh, nobody has ever been really persuasive with the absence of emotion. And it's pretty true, right? You're not going to listen to the person that's like, have you ever been to Manny's Pizza? It's really good. You should try it. Right, like that doesn't convey anything. In fact, we used to laugh and kind of make fun of my dad because he always exhibited that emotion when it came to a restaurant. He'd be like, have you guys had Manny's Pizza? And we'd say, no, we haven't been here. He'd go, oh, man. Like, it was always this excel of just pure delight, you know, some sort of sign. You guys got to try it. Like, he just had it with such a convicting belief. Persuasion happens with emotion. And Aristotle even articulated that one of the more effective ways of conveying that motion is through storytelling, which we talked a lot about that last year with the power of story. But, but most frequently, you see effective persuasive skill sets through the power of story and emotion. And then the fourth one was metaphor, right? Metaphor is powerful because it can simplify a complex idea. It gives language a certain beauty to it. And so coming up with metaphors that help convey truth can also be persuasive. And then his fifth and final element of persuasion was brevity, right? And so I'm reading through this list and I'm evaluating myself and how persuasive I've been. And I get to that fifth one, I was like, man, I was so close. You know, like four out of five isn't bad. You know, brevity is definitely not my strong suit at all. But, but those were the five elements. And you see that really in all the different areas where we are constantly combating or at least embracing or experiencing the art of persuasion. Okay, now the reason I'm presenting this to you this morning is because it also speaks to the reality that there are many times in life where we need reassurance, right? We need to be persuaded. We need to listen, especially when we go through seasons where we feel hopeless, right? When, when we need that sort of reassurance, when you start talking about righteousness, living by faith, as Paul has argued consistently throughout the course of this letter, at some point we have to ask ourselves, well, what do I do in those seasons where it's hard to have faith, where it's hard to have hope? I need reassurance. I need to be persuaded in what God has done. And that's exactly what Paul points to in the final moments of chapter four. 
He gets us again to look into the story of Abraham and Abraham being in this moment of hopelessness and how he was persuaded once again by the power of God and the impact that that had on Abraham and his faith. And that's gonna be what we look at today. So grab your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter four. Last week we were looking at really the first 17 verses of this chapter, it was a lot, but it was, it was the moment in this letter where Paul recognizes his need to give biblical justification to his thesis, right? What's his thesis? Righteous will live by faith. And so he's made the argument for it through the first three chapters, gets to chapter four and says, okay, let me show you how we can uh, support this through scripture. Takes his readers back to Genesis 15, six and the story of Abraham and how Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and how all of that took place before any work of the law, which, which really kind of accentuated Paul's point the, the law isn't coming to bring about works, it's coming to bring about faith because Abraham's faith was independent of, of works. And so he, he really offers a very solid biblical interpretation of his position. And in so doing, part of what we talked about last week is he models for us how to read scripture, right? That, that what Paul is doing is demonstrating context, understanding Abraham's story and its importance in the overall narrative of scripture. He, he shows this clear understanding of terminology, terms like credited and belief, and he really unpacks those things and explains how they appear in other elements of scripture. And then the third element that we talked about last week is that then he then attaches his biblical interpretations to a reminder of the character of God, right? That God's character is the one who is the God who brings life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. And so he gives us a great template, a great model of how we too should approach scripture when we're trying to answer difficult questions, but it's there in that accentuation of God's character that we now find ourselves. Paul has just made that emphasis on the character of God, and now he brings his argument home in this chapter in verses 18 through 25. So let's read how he transitions. Picking up in verse 18, it says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall, your offspring, uh, so shall your offspring be. And without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, the works it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, for he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Okay, so the, the first thing that I wanna call our attention to with this section are those first three opening words that describe Abraham's situation. Against all hope. That, that's the situation. Those are the sets of circumstances that's describing Abraham at this point in his life. He's in a season of life that is against all hope. You ever been there? You ever find yourself in that sort of season that just feels completely and totally hopeless? And you may sit there and instinctively go, yeah, I've been there before, but, but I really wanna make sure we understand really the specifics of what that season often feels like. Because part of what I had to wrestle with as I was going through this passage is to think through, okay, what are the things that I typically hope for? When, when do I truly feel like I'm against all hope? And the reality is, is that I often carry a lot of hope, but 
many times when I evaluate the source of that hope, it's probably not rooted as much as in God's power as it is in my own. Right, let, let me explain that for a moment. Okay, so, so the whole spirit of what Paul has argued and what we talk about in the context of this gospel is that when you recognize the creator and he has created all things, a huge part of what he created and intended to create was a dependency that creation had upon the creator. Right, like an, an inherent trust. And so the problem in the garden was Adam, Adam and Eve saying, we're not gonna depend on you, we're gonna be like God. Right? Part of what Paul is arguing to the Jewish audience here in this whole philosophy of the works of the law is to say when you start to embrace an, a righteousness that is by works, you're no longer dependent upon God, you're dependent upon yourself. Right? So he's trying to break us free from that idea where we are self-dependent. Right? That, that what the creator really desires is a full dependency on him. And when you think about it from that standpoint, what I had to acknowledge is that there are many times in my life that when I think about the hopes that I carry, it doesn't truly reveal a full dependency on my creator, that a lot of it is still dependent upon myself. Let, let me try to give you a couple examples, okay? One of the most sincere hopes that I carry week in and week out is that for every person that steps foot in this room is significantly impacted by the power of the living God. That is a sincere hope that I have each and every week. And it's genuine. But if you start to dig underneath it, what you'll find deep in my heart and even in my conduct is that I'll start to convince myself that the way that's gonna happen is based upon my ability. Right, like if I craft the perfect message with the right delivery and we get the right songs and the right length of a service and the right setup, the right all these different things, that that's gonna be what enables you to encounter the power of the living God. And when you really break it down in that situation, my hope is not on God, it's on me. And I think we do that a lot. I'll give you another example, right? One that maybe several young families can relate to, all families maybe to a certain extent, depending on the season. If you know Jennifer and me very well at all, you know that for the last year or so, we have had extensive conversations about our kids' education and what school they're gonna go to. And, and a lot of that conversation has arisen because we're at a natural season of transition. And so we're evaluating things. And as we evaluate, it constantly brings up our hopes for our children, right? We, we hope that they grow up to be strong followers of Jesus, that they have an opportunity to get a strong education, opportunities to build good social relationships, opportunities to, to hone and sharpen their skill sets and their abilities so that they can pursue uh, jobs and careers that they will find fulfilling. Like, we have a lot of hopes for our kids. And so then all of a sudden you have these decisions where all those hopes become evident, and what we'll do is we'll feel the weight of it all, and we'll say, you know what, if, if we're really wanting those things, then we've got to find the right administration, the right school, the right peer group, the right all these different things. And really, when you dig underneath it, part of what's going on is what we're saying is that for all of those hopes to be realized, it's dependent upon a school rather than on our God. So we do this a lot, right? We'll have hopes for things, but if you really dig underneath the source of those hopes, a lot of times what we're really relying on is our own power rather than on the power of God. And so ask yourself that this morning. When you think about your hopes, the things that you're hoping for, where does that hope really rest? Is it still dependent upon yourself and your own abilities? 
See, this was a very different situation for Abraham. There was no chance that for him he could depend upon anything within his own power and his own strength. Right? This was a situation that was against all hope. And here's, here's how that materializes. This is a, a very hopeless situation. And here's how we see that unfold. There's this really interesting phrase. So, so Paul reintroduces this season of all hope. He says, but Abraham believed. And he reminds us of the promise, the promise for Abraham to be the father of many nations, that so shall your offspring be. But the reason this was so hopeless was because Abraham faced the facts. And what were the facts? Man, I am, my body, when it comes to having a father, or having a son and being a father, is as good as dead. More than 100 years old. My wife, her womb, is dead. And there's this really powerful imagery that Paul's utilizing here, right? He's, he's already introduced this concept by reminding us of the character of God, the nature of God, correct, right? This is the God who brings life to the dead, and calls into being things that were not. And so now he's equating Abraham's experience, essentially saying that when this promise was presented and provided to Abraham, his body was as good as dead, and so was his wife's womb. Right? Essentially, there was nothing Abraham had that could allow him to even remotely think he had the power or the ability to bring this promise to fruition. It was against all hope. Right? And so here's, here's what I love about this, is that phrase, he faced the fact. If you want to really begin to evaluate the reason that sometimes our hopes are misdirected, right, and, and we really kind of maintain a certain self-dependence on the hopes that we articulate rather than a full dependence on the creator, is because we don't want to face the facts. Right? We want to we want to try to delude ourselves into thinking something. Here's essentially the fact that Abraham had to face, right? And, and it was specific to this particular promise of having a child, but really, no matter who we are, and no matter what sort of situation we may encounter, this is the common thread. The fact that we all have to face is this. We don't have control. Right? That's really at the root of it. Abraham has is, is hit a situation, hit a circumstance where he has to Fully acknowledge, this is beyond my control. And that is something that you and I hate to feel and rarely will acknowledge. And the reason we will so often misdirect our hopes is because we consistently try these feeble attempts to maintain control. <laughs> right? So, so we'll hope for all these things to address either hardship, situation, purpose, God's will, whatever it is, will we'll, we'll create these new sense of hopes that really just fool us into thinking that maybe I can still depend upon myself, maybe I can still have control, right? So we'll go through seasons and we'll think, well, if I could just get a new job, right, if we could just move to a different place, if I could just get more money, if I could just have a new set of friends, whatever it is, and what we're doing is we're creating these hopes that allow us to stay in control, and that's a manufactured hope. That's a misdirected hope. What Abraham did in this particular situation, what we often have to do is face the fact we're not in control. Is that something you've done recently? Or the things that you're trying to navigate, the situations that you're encountering, are you constantly trying to grab and maintain control in some form or fashion? 
There's a reason the phrase, let go and let God, has gained some momentum. There's a simplicity to it that rings true. Right? And, and when we talk about it, that's not saying become apathetic, become indifferent, right? to be disengaged. But there is something that needs to take place in our heart where we have to recognize we're not in control. And so I can't help but be willing to anticipate and, and expect that for many of us that are here in this room today, there are several things that we're battling, that we're facing, that we need to let go of. And so what is that for you? What is it in your life that you just need to let go? Acknowledge you're not in control. And trust God. It's exactly what Abraham did. He was against all hope, and yet he believed because he acknowledged this control didn't belong to him. And, and this is why that gets scary. This is why it's difficult. Right? We, we obviously like control. We like to maintain that control and be dependent upon our hopes rather than trusting in the Lord. But here's what can often happen, and you'll find evidence of this in, in both sides of the coin, is that a lot of times when we get to a place where we fully acknowledge we don't have control and we let go, one of two things typically happens. Our faith is either weakened or it's strengthened. Right, and, and Paul references it. He says, you know, but Paul, Abraham's faith, it wasn't weakened. In fact, he didn't unwaver, he didn't waver in unbelief. And yet, by acknowledging that and mentioning that, we need to see that that can absolutely happen when we get to a place where we realize I'm no longer in control. Because when I'm no longer in control and I don't like my circumstances, guess what I want to do? Blame God. That's what I want to do. And so when I get to that place and I embrace that sort of thinking, then absolutely my faith will be weakened and I will waver in unbelief. Has that ever been you? Is that you? Going through storms, encountering different circumstances where the whole world feels beyond your control and as a result, as you acknowledge it, you begin to weaken and waver in belief. Do you want to blame God for it? Abraham does something different. Abraham doesn't waver. He isn't weakened by the fact that he's not in control. He's not weakened by this situation of being against all hope. What it tells us is that actually his faith was strengthened and he glorified God. Gave glory to God in the process. It's remarkable. Don't you love people like this? You know people like this? Now I can tell you as a pastor, I have the humble opportunity and privilege to experience this and observe this over and over again. I get to see people go through incredible hardship, incredible difficulty, and somehow through it all, they have their faith strengthened and they give glory to God in the midst of it all. And it's truly remarkable. And Abraham is another example of it that Paul is referring to here in Scripture. Right, against all hope, things beyond his control, his faith is strengthened and he gives glory to God, which leads to the question, how? How is that possible for Abraham? How is it possible for anybody that we know in our lives that demonstrate a similar posture? And that's where you see the answer, the, the theme really for today's message. How was he able to do that? He was fully persuaded. <laughs> that word persuade here means fully convinced. 
He believed with complete certainty. But what was it that persuaded him? What, what was it? Obviously, we could go back and connect it to some of those elements of, of Aristotle. There's, there's a trusting in the character of God. There's an understanding of a certain need and a dependency upon him. Right? There's, there's an emotion in understanding who God is and what it is that this promise provides. There are all these different elements that we could connect to, but ultimately, if we're going to really zero in on the two different elements that are mentioned in this passage, there are two things that Abraham really trusts in that ultimately persuades him and strengthens his faith and allows him to give glory to God. It's God's power and his promise. I love it. Fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's how his faith was strengthened. Right? And so part of what we need to do is, is look at our own lives and evaluate if we take a similar approach and posture when we go through those seasons where all hope seems to be lost. Do we trust in the power of God? I mean, that is, that is ultimately what we have said is our prayer for this church. Right? You become part of this faith community, we say it over and over again, that our hope, our prayer is that the power of God would be unleashed in your life, this church, community, and this world. So that every tongue, tribe, and nation can come to know and proclaim the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. And so think about that. And think about whether or not you actually believe it. Like where do you need to see God's power unleashed in your life? Is there some form of healing that you need to experience? Is there some sort of provision that you've been asking God for? Is there some sort of liberation, reconciliation? Like what is it? What do you need to see take place in your heart, your soul, and your mind? And then ask yourself, are you depending upon yourself or do you truly believe in God's power to provide it to you? Think about our church and the things that we talk about that we desire for this church. When we talk about being a place of healing and we mention renewal on Wednesday nights in this program, like is that all it is? Is it just an activity, a program? Or do you believe that a church can intentionally and thoughtfully pursue the power of God to heal us from our broken pieces. When we talk about justice and we talk about making a difference in the lives of, of foster care children and those that need forever homes and we talk about whether or not that's something you can do, what, how do you evaluate that? Based on your own ability or but based upon God's power at work within you? We talk about possibly eradicating the need for foster care in Tarrant County. Does that seem like a, a, an audacious, unrealistic goal? Because what can a little church like this do? Or do we believe in the power of God to accomplish it? We talk about 200 baptisms, being disciples who make disciples. How does that resonate with you? Right? Okay, we're 13, 15 baptisms in. Man, that seems like a long way to go. don't know if it's ever really gonna happen. I don't know if I have the confidence to actually share my faith. I don't know if God's really gonna do those things. What are we trusting in? Our abilities are in the power of God. You think about your community and the world. You start thinking about alleviating poverty. You start thinking about reconciliation across racial divides. You think about change in a culture. What are you trusting in? Politics, governments, institutions, or the power of God? What is persuading you? For Abraham, he looked at all those things and what he believed was not in the things in the world around him or the power within him, but he believed in the power of God. That's where we're gonna find the reassurance that we long for. But there's something that's critically attached to this. 
It's not just understanding the power of God, but understanding God has the power to do what he promised. Right, we have to think clearly about God's promises. Now, Abraham, it's a really interesting kind of story because this promise that is extended to Abraham is very specific to Abraham, but it also has a massive impact and implication for the larger narrative of salvation for humankind, okay? And so what I think we have to somewhat distance ourselves from in terms of just fully relating to Abraham is recognizing how God's promises impact us, All right? Because a lot of times what I think we'll do is we'll try to individualize his promises to our own benefit. And what we can do over time is convince ourselves that we are the hero to the story, right? And that, that all of it really kind of revolves around us, our needs, our wants, our desires, our hopes, our expectations. When the reality is we're not the hero to the story, God is. God has a plan of redemption for all humankind. That's what he's promised. And so the promises that we need to cling to are the things that he has articulated where he's the hero of the story, not us. But when we gravitate towards that way of thinking, right, and our hopes are anchored in all the things that we desire for ourselves and the things that we feel like we need, what that ultimately does is it begins to kind of morph God out of this picture of a creator and into a picture of a genie who's there to grant all of our wishes, right? And even if they're good, noble things that we want, right? God, give me a great job. Give me a spouse. Lord, grant me children. Grant me favor. Heal me. Heal my loved ones. And then those things don't happen. And we want to say, well, then God's not honoring his promise. And that's a distorted view of what God has actually promised. Because when you look within the scriptures and you see what has actually been articulated, here's the hard truth when we're not the hero of the story. He hasn't promised you a great job. He hasn't promised you a spouse or children. He hasn't promised you that your loved one is going to be healed. Those aren't his promises. What is his promise, church? The promise that we see in what what it, Paul ultimately takes us to by reminding us of what Abraham believed was that Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. And Paul says, those words were not just written for Abraham, but for us. Because what God has promised is his presence. What God has promised is Emmanuel, God with us. And that promise has been fully expressed in Jesus Christ. And what his presence assures us is not that we're going to have an easy life or a comfortable life, but we're going to have everlasting life. We're going to have victory over death. That's the promise. And so when we look at the revelation of our God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ and we see his mercy, we see his grace, and we see that he was sacrificed on the cross for our sins and that God raised him to life for our justification, that's the promise that God has given us. And that's where our hope needs to rest. And too often we redirect it into what we want, what we desire. And that's not what he has promised. But the beautiful reality, church, is that what he has promised is so much better. 
It's so much richer and greater than anything we could have ever truly asked or imagined. And so what are you looking for? And what power are you trusting? How do you understand this promise? What's really persuading you? The reality is, is that this act of reassurance, call it persuasion, however you want to describe it, is true for any relationship. I mean, you pick a marriage, pick, pick uh, employee, and pick students, whatever it is, there are going to be these relationships where all of a sudden you're going to question the viability of the relationship and it's going to need reassurance. Seasons where that relationship is going to feel like it's against all hope. And so I need to find that reinsurance. I need to be fully persuaded that the relationship I have with this other person will be honorable to the promises that we've made. I see that a lot as a father. Right? If you think about children, they're in this season of inherent vulnerability that makes them consistently aware of the fact that they're not in control. Right? They, they're dependent on their entire livelihoods. You see it in infancy with the need to be fed, to be changed, to be clothed, right? And they cry out in that vulnerability. Then you get to childhood and, and you still see that same vulnerability, right? You, you see that they have this relationship with their parents that needs a constant reassurance because they'll encounter these things that create fear because they realize they're not in control, right? And so it can be those innocent things like a child that's scared of the dark, Right, you know, my, my kids, they have these fears. They've, they've had moments where they've been fearful of getting sick. Right, storms was a big one. Right, didn't like the idea of thunder and lightning and all those different things. And so they'd have these moments where they could feel not being in control and they needed to be persuaded. They needed to be reassured that they could make it through those, those scary moments. And so what would I do as a father? I never went into their rooms and came alongside them and said, okay, you're afraid of the dark, well, let's just sleep with the light on. Oh, you're afraid of being sick. Don't worry, you're never going to get sick. Oh, you're afraid of storms. Don't worry, one will never come through here. Never told them that. The reality is, is that what I promised them was my presence and my love. Yes, the light will stay off. There will be moments where darkness feels like it's all around you, but I'll be here. There will be moments, well, yes, you'll get sick, but I'll be right by your side. Storms are going to happen, but they'll never happen where you'll have to be alone. Your father will always be here to love you and see you through it. This is what relationships require. And this is the exact same message that we hear from our Heavenly Father. He doesn't guarantee us that life of ease. He says, I promised you my presence. And a presence that doesn't just get you through this life, but gets you to the next one. A presence that actually takes you to a victory over death. And the minute that we begin to question that sort of promise. And we say, well, that's beyond my capability. That's beyond my control. How do I know that that's really gonna happen? He points us to Jesus. And he says, look at my son. 
who gave his life on the cross for your sins and who I raised to life for your justification. And we see with greater clarity what Paul has already demonstrated us, that the God that we serve, our creator, who deserves our full trust, our dependence, who deserves for our hopes to rest in his arms and his arm alone, is the God who brings life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. And so where do you find your reassurance, church? My hope is that on this day, this Father's Day, you find your reassurance in Jesus alone and you run into his everlasting arms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you and we do thank you for who you are and all that you do for us. God, we acknowledge and confess so many times that we try to depend upon ourselves rather than upon you. God, that we misunderstand your promises. And Father, as a result, there are so many different seasons and situations where we have to confess that our faith is weakened and we waver. And yet, Father, even in the weakening, even in the wavering, you are there like a loving father who cares for a child. You never leave, you never forsake. And for that, God, we are grateful. Help us to see once again, Father, the things that we need to let go of so that we can fully rest and depend upon you. God, help us to run into your arms and be fully persuaded by the power that you have to do what you've promised. Help us to see the promise that is embedded in this gospel clearly with clarity, with conviction, with understanding, so that we can live a life that demonstrates the hope that is found in Christ. Help us to live by faith and find the righteousness that comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. We thank you, Father, so much for who you are and what you've done. And we now ask, God, that you would meet us in holiness and grace and in truth, that we would honor you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.